We're working our way through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and actually we're nearing the end of 1 Samuel. We're almost to the end of 1 Samuel, and in fact, in 1 Samuel, we now find ourselves at the end of an important section, that is the rise of King David. From here on out for the rest of 1 Samuel, the topic will be killing Saul and the movement of God's history to Saul's death. So this final chapter of this section is the two more pieces of the puzzle of David rising from anonymity in a, a stable to being anointed king and now rising up to lead a group of men. And we have two chapters, chapters 26 and 27, to think about. And this morning, the, one of the themes we see in these two chapters is security and safety, both for David and Saul. And security and safety is an important theme Nowadays, it seems like security and safety is all we talk about. You have security and safety. If you go to a concert, I mean, they dig through your bag and they wave the wand around you and they check everybody who's going into a concert. Any major sporting event is going to have even sometimes a military presence to ensure that no uh, evil people with evil intentions cause uh, mass casualties. In neighborhoods, we have neighborhood watch groups who uh, keep an eye out and uh, you see them, and they're peering behind the blinds as you walk by with your dog, and you wave to them, and all of a sudden the blinds close. Uh, the police work with neighborhood groups. There are groups online that you can, on Facebook and other social media things, where people share information about, hey, did you see this guy? What happened to this car? This stuff was stolen. People are worried about watching and looking and being aware of safety and security. People are worried about national security and military and the security they provide. We worry about the intelligence our intelligence collectors are able to get, and are they able to provide us a freedom from the tension and fear we, we have? Are we safe? Are we safe? How do I feel safe? How is it that I can feel safe? So we're going to talk this morning about a life of safety and security, a life of safety and security. And we're going to look at David's life, and we're going to look at Saul's life and see if maybe God might describe uh, show something to us about safety and security in his ways. I'm going to do something strange today. I'm going to start with the second chapter. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 27 and then go back to 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 27 beginning in verse 1. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by Saul. One of these days I will be destroyed by Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines, and then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David decides uh, Saul is going to pursue me till I die if I leave Israel and go to the land of the Philistines. Saul won't chase me there. And I'll finally find security and safety. And we're going to discover from David that a life of safety and security is not found in the world. A life of safety and security is not found in the world. David flees the promised land into the enemy of the Jewish people, the enemies of God's people, the Philistines. The Philistines were the sworn enemies of Israel, and they wanted Israel dead, and they would constantly raid them and seek to destroy them. And David decides, well, maybe... Maybe if I go to the Philistines, Saul won't catch me, and the Philistines will leave me alone. 
So he goes to the Philistines, and he makes nice with the king of the Philistines earlier in the book of 1 Samuel in order to keep this king from killing him. Do you remember what David had to do? He had to act insane. And the king, Achish, said, Hey, guys, do I have, am I running low on crazy people? Why are you bringing David to me? And David was kicked out of the land of the Philistines. But at that time, David had showed up to the land of Philistines with him and a handful of guys. Now David is showing up to the land of the Philistines with 600 fighting men and their families, a group of 1,000 people. And now the king might see a little bit of profit to be made by this band that David is leading. So David leads his people to the land of the Philistines, seeking to make nice with the king and to escape King Saul. And David talks to the king, and they figure out, where's a place where I can live that won't be a bother to the Philistines, but will give me a chance to lead my people, this group of a thousand people. And so the king of the Philistines gives, gives David a city, and the name of that city is Ziklag. Ziklag. I presume none of you have named any of your children Ziklag. It's not a name that's commonly used. So they live in Ziklag. Then what David does is this. David needs food. He needs money. He's got a thousand people to take care of. And so David and his men lead raiding parties into Israel. He goes into Israel and raids cities and raids a people in Israel. He doesn't raid, though, the Jewish people. He raids the enemies of the Jewish people. Verse 8, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, boo, we don't like the Amalekites. Whenever David attacked an area, he didn't leave anybody alive. He didn't leave a man alive. He didn't woman al- leave any women alive. He took their sheep and their cattle and their donkeys and their camels and their clothes, and he would return to the king. And when he would return to the king, the king would say, where did you go raiding today? And David would say, against Judah against Israel. I don't like them anymore, king. I'm going to raid them all I want. I'm on your team, King Achish. So he would raid the enemies of Israel, but then lie to the king of the Philistines and say, no, I'm raiding Israel. You and I have a common enemy. My people are no longer my people. And he would do this over and over again. He would leave no survivors because he didn't want anybody to survive and report back to the king that they were not, in fact, Jewish. They were Amalekites or Girgashites. So, verse 12 of chapter 27, Achish trusted David and said to himself, he's become obnoxious to his people, the Israelites. He will be my servant forever. We discover where this is heading at the beginning of chapter 28. The Philistines were going to gather to fight against Israel. And and the king came to David and said, Will you come and fight with me against your people? You have to come and fight with me. And David says this in verse 2. You are about to see what I can do. Let's get it on. That's what it says in the Hebrew, if you're wondering. And Achish said, very well, you're my bodyguard for life. And David put up no argument. What has happened? David goes and flees from the land of Israel into the land of the Philistines. And on the one hand, he seems to be doing the work of God by destroying the enemies of God in Jewish territory, in the promised land. On the other hand, though, 
He is seeking the good graces of an enemy king. You'll notice, and you can look while I'm talking, in all of verse, or chapter 27, God is not mentioned. David doesn't seek the Lord one time. God's purposes are not mentioned even once. God is completely absent. This and one other chapter in 1 Samuel is the only chapters in the entire book of 1 Samuel where God is not mentioned. And doesn't that make you wonder why? Because maybe David was a little bit off point. Look with me at verse 5 of 1 Samuel 27. David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes. Did you, what did he say? If I have found favor in your eyes, let me, have a, let me have a city to live in. And he was given Ziklag. David is seeking whose favor? The king of the Philistines. Doesn't, see, doesn't this seem out of character? David, for what seems like the whole of his life, has done nothing but seek the favor of the Lord. And now, in seeking safety and security for him and his people, he has not sought the favor of the Lord. He has sought the favor of this king, Achish. His plan was to get away from Saul and to befriend the Philistines. David would say it this way, it seems like God just only keeps me one step ahead of Saul. Do you remember him saying that in 1 Samuel? It seems like God just only keeps me one step ahead of King Saul. Do you know what? I'm sick of this. I want to be more than one step ahead. I want to have a few steps between Saul and I. So David wants to be more than one step ahead of Saul, and so he leaves the promised land into a land of compromise. He leaves the land of the covenant for a land of compromise. And he wanders away from God and perhaps is wondering, is God faithful? If God were faithful, he'd keep me more than a step ahead of Saul. I know who's faithful. Achish. If I can find favor in his eyes, I will be more than a step ahead of Saul. In fact, Saul will be so far from me I won't have to worry about him anymore. Does he seek the Lord's guidance? God, should I go to the Philistines? God, should I seek the favor of Achish? No, he doesn't. He gets caught in a web of difficulty that you and I both get caught in all the time. He finds himself in a land of compromise, a land where he's trusting in his own ability, and he's trusting in the favor of this king, yet at the same time he's seeking to do God's work. He's invading the, the people of Israel, he's invading the promised land, trying to wipe out the enemies. Have you ever been like that in your walk with the Lord? It's like, on the one hand, uh, I'm gonna, I, I have areas of compromise and difficulty on my life, but on the other hand, I'm still working on some ways that I want to serve the Lord. And so he's just caught in this great tension of, I want God to be faithful, but, but he's not, and so I'm going to do it my way, but at the same time, I want to follow his ways. He leaves the safety of God's faithfulness to look for the, the safety of the faithfulness of a Philistine king. 
Finding safety in the world is kind of an interesting thing. How far ahead of Saul was God keeping David? One step. Is that far enough ahead of Saul to be safe? If you're one step ahead, are you still ahead? Yeah, so the issue is that isn't that God wasn't providing David safety and security because David had made a covenant with David that he would be king. The problem is that David wanted better safety than God was providing. He had assessed that God's ways weren't uh, the ideal ways, and, and as a result, he's going to miss the joy of resting in the daily provision of God and his safety. I'm going to let you in on something. God's provision and God's security is always enough... And it's always on time. God's safety and God's security is always enough, and it's always on time. David's difficulty and our difficulty when resting in the Lord is not that God doesn't provide safety and security. It's we want more, and we want it earlier. Exodus 16. You're familiar with this, so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But maybe if you're like me, turning in the Bible helps keep you awake. The whole Israelite community sent out from Elam, and they came to the desert of Sin. It's between Elam and Sinai, and on the 15th day, the second month after they had come out of Egypt, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we had ready access to In-N-Out Burger. But you brought us out into this desert to starve. God, why have you brought us out into this desert? To kill us. So God provides to them manna. And God says, put together some gigantic flatbed um, you know, ox-pulled carts because I'm going to provide you all the manna you need for 40 years and you're going to need to load it and store it, right? You know the story. That's not what happens. Is that what they want to have happen? Of course, that's what we want to have happen. God, please provide enough so I never have to depend on you again. And God says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide you enough manna for how long? Today. And it will always be on time and it will always be enough. On the sixth day, collect twice as much, because on the seventh day, none will show up. So collect twice as much. So they collect twice as much on the sixth day, and God says, you've got plenty of manna for two days. What did they do on day seven? They got the extra jars out and went out to collect even more, because God has not provided us enough. What if on, on Sunday, he doesn't provide it again? God's provision is always on time, and it is always enough. Luke chapter 12, verse 16, Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take your life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. I don't need God. And God says, oh, really? Tonight, your life is over. 
You have failed to take care of the primary thing. And this is the, the default position of the human heart is to see how much we can get so we don't need God. And this is, this is where David finds himself. I'm tired of trusting God for the daily work to keep me one step ahead of Saul. I'm going to figure out what I need to do to get 20 steps ahead of Saul. God always provides enough. He always provides it on time. And listen, this is the key. God's provision is not primarily about providing what we need. God's provision is primarily intended to lead us into relationship with Him. God enjoyed the relational aspect of Him and David working together to stay one step ahead of Saul. David just failed to understand how safe he was a whole step ahead of Saul. God provides it on time. God provides enough. And God provides in such a way every single time that it will lead us to relationship with Him. When we seek to be provided and to make sure we don't need God anymore, we miss out on the joy of resting in the Lord's safety day in and day out. David sought the safety of the Philistines, and he missed the joy of the Lord. Even though he had a big city and all the food he can eat, he was missing God. And soon, next week, we're going to find him in a very sticky situation where he's being deployed to go into war against Israel. I want you to think about, in your own life, just for a minute before we go back to chapter 26, uh, there's probably things in your life that make you unsettled. Maybe things about work stress you out, freak you out, make you feel unsettled. Things about uh, relationships in your family or extended family. Maybe things about your health that make you feel unsettled. Maybe things about your finances make you worried. We tend to think like David did, that God is doing all of these things, creating all this unsettledness in our life because he's kind of a meanie. And it's fine. That's not sacrilegious for you to think sometimes, I think God's being mean. Now, you can tell us, especially in church, I don't think we're supposed to say that, um, but you know you pray it. I call it the dude really prayers. You ever prayed, dude, really? Some of you guys do. Something happens. Dude, really? This, so this is how you roll? I mean, you, maybe you pray it in a different language. Maybe you pray it like the psalmist. How long, O Lord, will you abandon me? That's in the Bible, so you can pray that. And we have to understand that all the time, every time God puts us in situations where we are unsettled, like David looking over his shoulder and he can see the dust rising from the wilderness because Saul is right there. He's gonna, David's going to watch him kill a thousand people that he's supposed to protect. It's intended to move us toward God that we might rest in him. It, it's not intended for God to, he's not trying to move us away from him. He's trying to move us to, he said, listen, I'm going to create unsettledness in your life that you'll jump onto me and rest on me and in me. There's another verse uh, I like, maybe you'll like it too, Matthew 6, verse 34. Jesus says this, I'm going to read starting verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things 
will be given to you. Verse 34 of Matthew 6, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, and this is where David missed. David was tired of being okay today but worrying about tomorrow. I'm going to go to the Philistines and make sure tomorrow is handled too. And Jesus is saying, uh, think about it this way. Whatever your problems are facing, whatever the challenges are, the unsettledness, your family, your work, your money, your health, you think you're going to make it to bedtime? And this is silly. I'm just, this is how my silly brain thinks. Sorry. Do you think you're going to make it to bedtime? If, if not, that's okay too. Can you make it to lunch? Do you think, let, put this, and I know this is silly, but bear with me. Can you bear with me? Can you make it till bedtime? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands because then we might freak out if only half the people raise their hands. So let's just practice something just today. Just give it a shot. So just rest in him till bedtime. Tomorrow, all that stuff that's freaking you out, I promise you, it'll be there. I, <laughs> I guarantee you, when you get to tomorrow, it's there. And I, this isn't just me. I, I believe this is what the Bible is saying. Listen, will all that garbage be there tomorrow? The answer is yes. And then what do you do tomorrow morning? You do it again. Am I, I going to make it to bedtime? Yeah, no, yeah, I've got, I've got enough food in the fridge. Okay, good. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get three, three meals or at least two and a half meals till bedtime. Uh, okay, so I'm going to rest today. See, what, what the enemy does and, and what, what uh, David did is instead of saying, to, this is unbelievable, uh, the balance of all of my entire life. Look, we showed up here on this particular Sunday and every single one of us will make it to bedtime tonight, uh, Lord willing. So why not enjoy this, this day he has given us? And then tomorrow, why don't we do that again? Hey, you know, got food in the fridge, got a, a job for today. The end of the day, I might not, but even if I don't, I'm probably not going to starve to death between when I get fired and bedtime. So can I rest in the Lord for today? See, this is what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, I want you to enjoy being one step ahead of Saul. I want you to get, uh, understand that that's where the rest is found, is when I'm just going to let you have today. And, and Jesus would actually tell us this is a grace. He says, because if I guaranteed you tomorrow and the next 10 years, do you know what would happen? It would be the worst thing I could give you because you wouldn't come to me anymore. You'd stop coming to me just like David stopped going to God. He went to the land of the Philistines and apparently he didn't need to pursue God anymore. He didn't need to pursue his guidance and his leading. A life of safety and security will not be found in this world as much as we pursue it, trying to sock it away, trying to make our plans to make sure the next 10 years are handled. I guarantee you, you will not be able to make the next 10 years okay. It's not there. David tried to find it, and you're going to find out as we move through 1 Samuel it didn't work. And Jesus is telling us this, rest in me today. Am I good for today? Then rest in the Lord. Is there joy to be found in just this day, just this one day, resting in God's joy? And then tomorrow, maybe I can find strength to rest in God's joy again. There's joy and relationship with God to be found in just staying one step ahead. Because in that kind of life, we find an engaging and vital relationship with God. 
A life of safety and security is not found in the world. It's found in resting in the Lord just for today and letting God worry about tomorrow. I promise you tomorrow will be there when you get to it. Today, why don't we rest in the Lord? Okay, let's go back to 1 Samuel 26, if you don't mind. A life of safety and security is not found in the Lord, and a life of safety and security is not found in strength. 1 Samuel 26. The Ziphites, who are the Ziphites? The Benedict Arnolds of Israel. This is the second time they have ratted out David's location to King Saul. And they said, hey, Saul, we know where David is. So Saul went out to the desert of Ziph, near the Ziphites, as you might expect. And he had 3,000 of his select troops. And they made a search for David. And during their search for David, they made an encampment. And David discovered where Saul's encampment was. And so David and a couple of his men uh, went out to spy out King Saul's encampment. He saw that King Saul had arrayed the 3,000 men in a, a fashion all around him, and right in the middle was King Saul and his general, Abner. Why would King Saul put all of his 3,000 men all the way around him? That's the place of safety. David's got 600 ne'er-do-well soldiers and a bunch of women and children. Saul has 3,000 Navy SEALs. And Saul says, come and get me. Good luck with that, David. I'm squared away. You can hide in your little cave if that's where you're holed up in. I can camp right out in the middle of the, of the valley and feel as safe as you do, uh, curled up in the back of some uh, forgotten sheep pen or forgotten cave. So David and another guy say, let's go sneak in there. Won't that be a kick? This won't be the last time David does this. He is very sneaky. He's like a hobbit. So David and another man sneak through the soldiers, weaving their way through the beds and the tents, trying not to startle the donkeys and the camels or to kick over the pots or to disturb the smoldering fires. And they make their way slowly but surely to where King Saul is sleeping and where General Abner is sleeping. And there was a spear stuck in the ground right next to Saul's head. Does David have a relationship with this spear? How many times has he seen this particular spear hurling through the air at his head? I think at least three, if not four times, King Saul has sought to pin David to his wall with his spear. So here's his mark, laying on the ground with the spear of death in the ground next to his head, and it's his opportunity to kill him. His uh, uh, Abishai, who had traveled with him, says, let me pin him to the ground. I bet you I can do it with one shot. Dare me? Huh? What do you bet? One shot. I won't have to do it twice. Not my first rodeo with the spear. And David says, no way. No way. Grabs the pot, grabs the spear, they sneak out. The Bible tells us it wasn't just because David was sneaky. It was because the Lord had put a deep sleep on the entire encampment. David then awakens and calls out to Saul. Look with me at verse 15. 
of 1 Samuel 26. And by verse 15, I mean verse 14. David called out to the army and to who? Abner, son of Ner. He calls out to the general. He doesn't call out to Saul. Notice, he calls out to Abner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? David's about to talk a little security trash. Who are you who calls to the king, Abner said. And David said, Abner, you're a man, aren't you? I mean, I thought you were. Who was like you in all of Israel? I mean, you've got guns. You're ripped. You... Uh, sleep next to the king. Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Could you imagine Abner's face? White as snow. What? Someone came to destroy your lord the king, Abner. What you have done is not good. As surely as the lord lives, you and your men should die. You didn't protect and guard your master, the lord's anointed. Look around you. Look next to the king's bed. Do you see his spear? Do you see his water jug? And Saul, uh, Abner realized very quickly he had failed. His job was to keep the king safe. And David and Abishai had snuck right up to the bed of the king and taken his weapon. If David would have wanted to, he could have pinned David or Saul to the ground. David says this to King Saul, if you'll follow along with me down in verse 18. Saul, why are you pursuing me? What have I done? What's wrong? What am I guilty of? Let my Lord the King listen to my words. Pay attention to this. Listen close. If the Lord, Saul, has incited you against me, then may God, he, may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, listen, if, however, Abner has done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance. Listen, here's what Abner was doing. Saul, we've got to keep you safe. We're going to do that two ways. Number one, we're going to kill that rat David. You will never be safe as long as David's alive. As long as David's alive, Saul, you will never be safe. Now let's go get David, but as long as he's alive, we are going to keep you safe by putting 3,000 Navy SEALs all the way around you. No one will get in. We will go and we will kill David and you will be safe. You will be fine. If David is dead and your army is with you, if we come out with all of the strength of Israel, nothing can get to you. And David sneaks in because of the work of the Lord and takes his, his spear and takes his water jug. Saul knows that David will be king. Saul knows that he has lost the kingdom. Uh, Samuel had told him that. But rather than humbling himself before God and saying, God, uh, your will not mine, I will serve your king David, he decides to rest in his own strength and to pursue his own power he says, I can find my safety without obeying God, and he discovers he is in the most precarious situation he's ever been in. Safety and security is not found in strength, Saul discovers, because he is exposed 
more than he has ever been exposed before, despite the fact that he was surrounded by the most powerful man, the most well-trained man in all of Israel. If you want to, you can look with me in Matthew chapter 5. There's a couple of verses here, a couple of things that Jesus says that helps us understand uh, what God is doing here in David and Saul in knowing that strength is not merely found, or safety is not merely found in our own strength and power. These are familiar verses, but they're worth sort of slowing down and hearing them. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, listen, verse 5, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our culture today calls people like this spineless milk toasts. There's no spine, there's no backbone. You've got to stand up for yourself. You've got to be strong. You've got to be powerful. You've got to be confident. And Jesus says, no, this is, this is where God will make himself known to be powerful, is in the meek and the poor in spirit and those who are persecuted without putting up a fight. Jesus here is doing something that you can't do in our culture. He's celebrating weakness. Because it's in the weak and the meek and the poor in spirit that God's strength is most profoundly seen. And this is what Saul is supposed to discover. You can surround yourself with the entire military. You're not going to conquer the world because it's the poor in spirit that will conquer. Same idea from the Apostle Paul over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you want to follow along, you can. If, if not, you can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1, he says this. So it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. In fact, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise words and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power found in the gospel. Paul intentionally came to the Corinthian church, intentionally being simplistic and weak, that they might rest in the truth of the power of God in Jesus' salvation as communicated in the gospel. Safety and security is not found in strength. It's in fact found in our weakness as we rest in God. So we discover the proverb that is probably one of the most significant American proverbs of the last, 20, uh, the last century. God helps those who help themselves. Two things. Number one, it's not in your Bible. Worse than that, it's not in your Bible. It's wrong. 
was watching a movie called Where the Red Fern Grows. You seen that movie? Everybody, you're going to start crying right now, aren't you? It's like the one movie where guys are allowed to cry. If a dog dies, guys are allowed to cry, right? Now I feel, right guys? I mean, help me out here, because I didn't cry. Uh, my brother did. Um, <laughs> cried for both of us. Um, so the kid's saving up his money for the two dogs. He wants to buy these two dogs, uh, uh, hunting dogs. And, uh, and so he's saving up, and he's talking to an older man. And he said, well, I, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and I, I still don't have any money for these dogs. And what does the older man tell the kid? You probably don't remember. It's stuck with me. I don't know why. He said, you know what? When you want to do something, you want God's help, you've got to meet him halfway. Boy, that really inspires that kid. Then he really gets to work. He earns, earns money. In fact, he doesn't meet God halfway. He meets God the whole way. That's kind of wrong, too. I hate to tell you that. If you want to meet God halfway on, on your salvation, then you're going to end up with half a salvation. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God is strong for the weak who are helpless. God helps the helpless. God is strong for the weak, and God is a help to the helpless, as, they, as God was for David, the weak and militarily weak, sneaking in and exposing Saul to Saul's actual weakness. We want safety and security because we find strength in our police, in our military, in our culture, in our, uh, the locks on our doors, or our job security, or uh, that our family will always be there. And God is saying that uh, your safety and security will not come in the strength of any of these things. In fact, your safety and security will come to the point uh, more so when we discover how weak we are and how much we need Him. And that any strength that we might find in those things is merely something God has provided because He is good. God is strong for the weak. This is good news for weak people. It's bad news for people who perceive themselves as strong. I say that on purpose. Perceive themselves as strong. Saul looked pretty strong, didn't he? He perceived himself as pretty strong. He didn't understand how exposed he was. We seek safety and security. It's not found in the world. It will never be found in the world as much as we seek it. And it will not be found in our strengths. Because God is strong for those who are weak. And God is a help for the helpless. Look with me at 1 Samuel 26, 19. I want to show you something as, we, as a way of concluding. We discover something here in 1 Samuel 26 about David and his relationship with the Lord. In fact, he knew something about God that I think often we miss. And I think perhaps often we don't think this truth of God is even present in the Old Testament. We assume what David knew of God isn't present until the New Testament. Here's what David was saying to the king. Now, let my Lord King listen to his servant's word. He says this to Saul. If the Lord has incited you against me, what does he say the Lord will do? He'll accept an offering. Hey, Saul, did, did God incite you against me? I, I kind of hope that's true. Do you know why? Because God is gracious. I will seek his forgiveness. I will seek to restore my relationship with him that he will no longer incite you against me. David knows something of God's grace. 
God, David knows something of his relationship with God, that his relationship with God is based on the fact that God is long-suffering, and he is kind, and he is gracious, and he looks forward to the opportunity to extend mercy to those who need it. David understood, in fact, something about God's grace, and because of that, that had actually become a part of who he was. Look with me at verse 22 of 1 Samuel 26. Saul says, I've sinned, David. I'm wrong. Abner, you moron. David, come back. Come back. Come to me. Uh, I've been a fool. I've been wrong. We call that confession, right? And what does David do? Because the, the kindness and mercy of his God has now infused his own heart, David says this. Listen, here is the spear. Come and send one of your guys to get it. I mean, he's holding the spear that has been flung through the air on multiple occasions to end him. And what does he do with it? You can have your spear back. Saul, um, remember how you wanted to kill me many, 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 many times? You're forgiven. Here's your spear. I forgive you to such a degree you can have back the implement of my death. You can have back the implement of my ending. Here's your spear back. Now, I'm not coming with you. There's a difference between forgiveness and trust here. (laughs) Not an idiot, but I forgive you. I forgive you. David writes this in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out, By day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Verse 16 of Psalm 22. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Listen. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garments. He trusts in the Lord, they say. They mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. Let the Lord rescue him. Do you remember all these things in the life of Christ? He was pierced for us. He was mocked for us. He was stripped for us. John 19, 31. It was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and, and then those of the other guy. Verse 33, listen. When they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, what? The soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. 
Jesus was pierced. David said, saw it, and that's fine. Have your spear back. Jesus uh, endured the piercing from us. In a very significant and real way, Jesus would stand here today and hand us his spear and say, do what you got to do. I will accept an offering. And just as my son David said, I will accept an offering if I am incited against you. Is God incited against us? Yes. We have rebelled against him, and we have abandoned him. He says, but if you will come to me, I will accept an offering. And we say, well, what's the offering that you will accept? And he picks up a spear and hands it to us and says, kill me. I'll accept me. Saul clutched to his kingdom, and he lost it. David let go of that which would kill him, and God protected him. And we see something in our Savior there, that he would willingly say, I will offer my grace and forgiveness to you at my peril. I will hand you the spear that will bring the rush of blood and water that you might be washed clean. If we have such a Savior, can we let go of our kingdoms? If we have such a Savior that would say, you know what, Uh, you and I have a problem You've rebelled against me. And we say, I I don't want there to be a problem. God, what can we do to fix this? And he says, there must be a sacrifice. It must be me. Here's the spear. Offer me. Take my life, that my blood and the water from my body might come from me and wash you, that you and I, therefore, might be together. Because guess what? Jesus would say, you kill me all day. You can't keep me dead. I'm just that awesome. I rise from the dead. So not only will I be your sacrifice to atone for your sin, I will be the power of your resurrection so that you and I can hang out together just forever. And we want to clutch to a kingdom here? We do. Can we let go of our kingdom and instead cling to the one we pierced? Can we let go of this thing, whatever it is, that we say, I need this to feel whole, I need this to feel secure and safe and and happy, and instead let all that stuff go and say, God, I'm going to stay one step ahead of this world, one step ahead of my enemy, I'm going to cling to the one I have pierced. There's a good promise for those who say, yes, I want to do that in John chapter 10. Jesus says this, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall what? They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. Safety and security is not found in this world. It's not found in our strength. It's found in Jesus, the one we have pierced. Let me just mention one thing. It's not in my notes, so here we go. Dangerous road. Sometimes as Christians, for those of us who are here as Christians, we say, oh, I thank the Lord that he saved me and that I'm kept safe in his hand, but you have no idea what I've done since I've been in his hand. Right? I think for some reason Christians were okay uh, having a really bad sin history before we were saved, but we're not, uh, not allowed to have any of the really bad sins after we're saved. 
got quiet, so I know I'm talking about you. All right. My father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Who, who does that include? That includes you. You also can't jump out. Let me put it this way. What's going to be worse than the fact that you pierced him? I mean, that's pretty, we killed him. Now, I'm not giving you a free ride to sin all you want. That's a good way to lead to a, a life of destruction and pain. But I am saying you will always be in his hand. You can't sin your way out of Jesus' hand. Let me give you a warning. He will help you get over it, though. He has some interesting ways of doing that. That's another sermon. Safety and security. It's not found in this world. I know it sounds trite, but there's only about 99% of this room that are trying to find safety and security in this world. You, me, all of us, aren't we? It's not here. It doesn't exist. Safety and security is not going to be found in our strength, our confidence, our confidence, our savings, our family. It's not going to be found there. The only place to find safety and security is being one step ahead of our enemy in the hands of the one we pierced because he loves us. 